2: Sunday morning, December 19th, the final hard line of 20. What year is it? 2021. Here on News Radio 930 WBEM and we've got a packed show for you. Dr. Kevin Hardwick is about to join us to kick off the show. We uh, are going to replay our discussion with Dr. Amish Adalja at 10:30. Mayor Byron Brown uh, joins us at 11 and Dave Leventhal from Business Insider uh, will be giving us the details of a 5-month investigation from Business Insider. He, uh, he did a practice run on C-SPAN earlier in the week. I'm glad he, um, he did that to prepare for Hardline this Sunday. So all that and more before we uh, kick off the Bills game at 1 o'clock. And, as I mentioned, kicking us off, current Erie County legislator and future Erie County comptroller, Dr. Kevin Hardwick. Uh, Dr. Hardwick, good morning.
3: Good morning, Joe. Did I hear you say this is the last one of the of the year? Does that mean there will be no Christmas hardline?
2: There will be no Christmas hard. It's it's difficult to get guests as you as you know hosting the show the day after Christmas. You know that's all I wanted for Christmas, though, Joe. <laughs> well, maybe I'll put a best of together. All right. That's very good. Uh, Dr. Hardwick, you know this week something that I've been talking about a lot, something we had uh, Joe LaRigo on earlier in the week to talk about, and you. It's uh, these these Erie County tests. Um, we see what's going on in Monroe County as they are handing out packets of go home tests to uh, the residents of Monroe County. You go to New York City, you see a tent on every corner for free rapid tests. Why is this? Why is this not a thing? In Erie County, um, when other places, parts of the state, you can pretty much snap your fingers and get a free rapid test.
3: Well, I, I think the health department feels that the at-home tests are not as accurate as what they're doing at the, at the uh, various other sites, the other types of tests that they're doing. Uh, there are false positives, false negatives, and and I think that's that's holding them up. I also think they're concerned about uh, uh, the data, that uh, if you take a test at home, obviously, you're not going to be reporting that to, uh, to anybody. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, then we're, we're not going to ha- have, uh, have a good feel for what we're up against.
2: But to be fair, they have the data now and we still have high cases. Do you think it would be better if someone knew as soon as possible? For example, last night I was feeling a little under the weather. I took an at-home COVID test, right? I had one in my sink. Boom, I feel fine. It was just, you know, mostly in my head. Wouldn't this be better to so people knew right away that they don't – not to leave your house, not to get around other people? Uh, you know, like I said, we see this working in New York City. We'll see the results of this in Monroe County, Uh, New York, you know, Erie County, you've got to place a phone call just to get a free test. I would,
3: uh, I would agree with you, Joe. I think that this is uh, so severe now that we need to throw everything at it. And that includes masks, which are not perfect. And you've noted that on your show a number of times, but, but still the, uh, you know, perfect should not be the enemy of the good sort of thing. Uh, it involves, obviously, vaccines, and I think uh, I think at-home testing may, may be part of it. But I also understand that the county executive and the health commissioner are, are doing everything that they can. I don't suspect their motives. Uh, it upsets me when I hear people uh, say out there that, uh, you know, this is a power thing with them, and that's what all these mandates are about. I can assure you it's it's not. I saw the, uh, the county executive at an event. Uh, early last week. Um, and you can tell that this is taking its its toll on him. He's doing everything he thinks he can to uh, to fight this. Um, it's something that scares a lot of us. I mean, we in the city of Tonawanda are waking up to the Buffalo News this morning. We see that we lost uh, our, my council member, Tom Newman, only 53, no underlying conditions, uh, was planning to get vaccinated in January, uh, wanted to see... Uh, What uh, what the what the effect of the vaccine, the side effects were, which is a which is an understandable position. A lot of people have taken that. Uh, But he passed away a couple days ago. Um, And, you know, I had followed uh, on on Facebook his uh, his ordeal and that of his wife uh, in uh, with with COVID in the ICU. And it's just heartrending. I mean, this is a this is a great guy. Uh, He was, again, my council member in the city of Tonawanda. He was also the uh, chair of the city of Tano, the Republican Committee, uh, great husband, great father, a volunteer fireman, gave back a lot to the community, and now he's gone. It, it, it's, you know, and it's just one more on the list. In the last 12 months, I've lost, or I've, you know, perished uh, uh, four people that I know well. Uh, a gentleman two doors down. Uh, my next door neighbor, who was only 45 years old, and then a woman this past summer, who was only 44, who lived in the neighborhood, and, and my granddaughter played soccer with with her daughter. Uh, it's sad. You know, people are saying, you know, we got to get back to normal, uh, and that uh, you know, eventually, you know, we gotta we gotta move on. Uh, comparing this to the flu, which we which we live with every year, I- I've been on this earth 64 years, Joe. So. And I don't know a single person who has died of the flu. I know that tens of thousands of people die every year from the flu. I know that, but I don't know any of them. I know four people in the last year. I mean, no, I know of more than four people, but four people I was fairly close with uh, that have perished from this. Um, you know, we got to we got to throw everything at this, uh, and I think I think I think it's incumbent upon all of us. To do our part. We're talking about public health here, uh, not not private health. I don't think we can take the position, well, if I get it, I'll be okay, because quite frankly, most people your age will be okay, uh, and they know that. The problem is they run into some of the rest of us uh, who might not be okay, and, you know, we've seen the results. Again, uh, I, you know, most people, that, everyone that I know who has ever gotten the flu has gotten better. Uh, I know very closely, four people now uh, who have gotten COVID uh, who did not get better, and that that scares the hell out of me.
2: No, and, and, and as you've heard me say, I, I never try to take the uh, the seriousness out of it. I know two people who have passed um, uh, of COVID. It, it, it's sad. We we know how severe it can be. And but you know, to go back to the the county executive power thing. Now you know things I say during the week, and, and you know how I feel. But when you see something like this, that other counties throughout. New York State are handing out tests, are are putting that in the in the hands of the citizens. Can you see where people get this this belief that the county executive is doing this over a power trip? Um, when you compare it to other places throughout the state,
3: yeah, and, and 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 I can see how you get that, but that's not the way I would spin that. I think the the county executive and the health commissioner, even though I I might have a problem with this individual decision. Are, are doing what they think is is best uh, and and you know I uh, you know I give them credit for that I think that their response overall has has been admirable uh, it hasn't been perfect no one has been perfect anywhere in the United States uh, but I think we've done a lot more in Erie County than a lot of other places uh, and with this at-home testing thing again, I'd like to see what uh, what more we could do Uh, The thing about waiting is we will get a feel for, uh, you know, people point to Monroe County, Rochester, and what they're doing. Uh, You know, we'll see how it works there. Uh, By the time this committee meets uh, in January, I will not be on the legislature, but the committee will be taking up this resolution. uh, And maybe we'll have more data. The other thing we'll have more data on is this Omicron variant, which, uh, you know, which is all over the place. Uh there's, uh there's evidence that maybe it's not as severe coming out of South Africa, but then you look at England and you look at the rest of Europe and maybe it is as severe or more severe. The one thing that everybody seems to agree on is it is more uh, uh, transmissible, more contagious, uh, and that should scare all of us.
2: And you know that that news out of South Africa, ninety-one percent hospitalizations are down. I, I'm hoping that state stands true here as well. Now, this vote for the test was this your last vote in the legislature?
3: Uh, well, it was it was at the last meeting. Yes, it wasn't the absolute last vote. Uh, and realize what this was was not a vote for or against the uh, um, the resolution. It was a vote to send it to committee and to consider it there and to get testimony. And that's what will be done in January.
2: Now, looking at uh, finances, as you move into the comptroller position, uh, what do you think the big projects in Erie County are going to be once you take over in 2022?
3: Well, obviously looming out there is is the stadium. And I think I would like the comptroller's office to weigh in on that at least as to the, uh, the, the, the costs and the benefits and the ratio thereof. Uh, I think that uh, the, uh, the I, I'm not sure what impact or any impact will have on the fight on COVID. I think that's going to be ongoing. Uh, that's, you know, that's consumed our, most of our time for the last couple of years. I think that uh, I would look, like to uh, uh, revive something that Joel Jambra had going when he was county executive Uh, When he had us thinking about regional cooperation, I think regionalism was something that was was big back in the early 2000s. I think it died with red and green budget and that fiasco, but I think it's still, regional cooperation still has a lot of merit. And I would like to do some studies uh, on ways that we might be able to save money and provide services better if we all cooperate, the various municipalities uh, in Erie County.
2: Now, Kevin, you know, uh, like I said, this is the last hard line of 2021, and uh, we we talked to you about stuff locally, obviously, because you're involved in local politics. But I I do want to get your opinion of something on a national level that is breaking uh, in the last hour, and that is Joe Manchin um, voting against, going to vote against the Build Back Better. Uh, What do you think of of that going on in D.C. now, and what would Democrats have to do, do you believe, to get Joe Manchin to change that no vote to a yes vote?
3: Yeah, I, I really have not been paying a lot of attention to what's been going on in Washington. We've been kind of bogged down here, uh, but I, 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 I don't know. They've got to be very careful because uh, Joe Manchin comes from a, a very Republican state I think they have to understand that he's in a very difficult position, um, and I think that there are a lot of concerns uh, on on both sides of the aisle about a lot of things. Uh, and like so many things, I don't think we can, I, I don't think we can demonize our opponent just because they disagree with us. And I think there's way too much of that that's been going on in the last couple of years.
2: You know, as someone who's who's been on, you know, who was a Republican, now a Democrat, you look to these midterm elections and, and you know, y- you've obviously uh, seen a lot of politics. You've seen these midterm elections come up. Uh, what do you you know? Everyone's saying it's going to be, you know, a, a good year for Republicans, and it usually is for the party that's not in the White House. But as a Democrat, what do you think are some strategies Democrats could use um, going into these midterms?
3: Well, I think I, I think to begin with, uh, it is probably looking like it is going to be a good year for Republicans, especially in the House of Representatives, uh, especially since this is a redistricting year, and so many of the state legislatures, which draw the district lines, are in Republican hands, uh, and the gerrymandering will certainly favor uh, the Republicans. Uh, Now, that's not going to affect the Senate, of course, because the Senate is, everybody runs at large statewide to begin with. Uh, what, what Democrats can do, I think, is is listen to their constituents, listen to the people, understand that, that you know, um, we can't go uh, uh, hard left on everything just because we have control of uh, both the House and the Senate uh, currently. Uh, I think that they have to be um, 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 aware of their more vulnerable members who come from uh, districts which, uh, which uh, tend to uh, go Republican to begin with, uh, and that you know, people like the Joe Manchin of the world are restricted in his, what they can do and still get themselves reelected.
2: Looking back uh, statewide here in New York, you know, obviously in 2020, there was a lot of talk of um, the mail-in voting and the the stipulations that were made because of COVID-19. We now hear Governor Hochul say that she wants to bring mail-in voting back for the 2022 elections. Uh, what would you say to that? And is there is there a line you could you could walk there to where you would make both sides happy with a decision when it comes to voting in 2022?
3: Well, I doubt you'll make both sides happy with anything. Uh, but I think the, the advantage of mail-in voting is that it does uh, uh, open up uh, a lot more avenues to participate. And I think participation is something I would hope we would all agree is uh, is something we want to promote. Uh, so, I, I mean, a couple of years ago, mail-in voting or last year, not this past election, but the year before, when we, you know, we were so much in lockdown mode and so many people were afraid to come out to the polling places and vote, uh, mail-in voting seemed to work, not only here, but around the country.
2: And yeah, I got to ask you this. You, work, you you go downtown a lot. You work downtown. Um, you saw what happened with the grain elevator um, last week in the windstorm. We have the mayor on at 11 o'clock. The city has given... Um, ADM the permission to tear it down. What do you think of old of buildings like that? You know, hey, I love history. I, I love stuff like that. But you know, we've got this thing's got a big hole in the side of it now because of the windstorm. Do you agree with the city's decision to tear that down?
3: I, I don't necessarily disagree with it. I don't have a position on that, Joe. That's uh, that's going to be up to the city. But I do think that uh, historic preservation has been good uh, for the city of Buffalo and Erie County in general. And whenever we can, you know, save something old, uh, and even if we have to repurpose it, I think it, uh, it it works to our benefit.
2: Before I let you go, Bills Panthers, the Bills have not had a good a, a good two weeks. What are you feeling for this game at one o'clock?
3: Well, you know, so many of us stayed up for that game last night, which got kind of scary during the end, but the Colts were able to pull it off, and the the door is open there, right, for the Bills, so they have to take advantage of it, and I think they will. I think they're going to win out. What I'm, what I'm more concerned about, Joe, is what other two teams should I be rooting
2: for today? Oh, you know, Kevin, I will get you that text at noon because I, uh, it, it's still, you know, very shaky with all these reschedules. i got to see who's starting on these Tuesday games. So that is my hour before kickoff that I am making those decisions.
3: Okay. Well, good, Joe, because you know I'm pulling for you.
2: Well, I appreciate that, Kevin, and uh, obviously we will talk off-air, but next time I talk to you on-air, uh, we'll be talking to Erie County Comptroller Kevin Harbert. Kevin, I hope you and your family have a great holiday season, and we'll talk real soon. Thank,
3: thank you, Joe, enjoy your first Christmas as a married man.
2: Oh, I will, I will, especially when three days after Christmas I'll be in New York for the Tech Bowl game.
3: And well, well, then, then, then you'd better get Katie a really, really nice present.
2: I think I did. I think I did. But we'll uh, we'll get the answer on Christmas Day. All right, Joe. All right, Kevin. Thank you. That is Dr. Kevin Hardwick, current Erie County Legislature, future Erie County Comptroller. When we come back, Brian Mazurowski and I spoke with Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins University. We talked about booster shots and. Maybe it's not time to be pushing everyone to a booster shot. We also talked about other things when it comes to COVID, the Omicron variant, and more. We will have that. And don't forget, at 11 o'clock, Mayor Byron Brown will be joining us to, yes, talk about his decision when it comes to the grain elevators and also New Year's Eve preparations downtown and uh, his thoughts on more accessible testing when it comes to COVID-19. All that and so much more here on Hardline on WBEN. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they
3: make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game.
2: Tomorrow at 9, there uh, we will not be full staff, BMAS and Beamer, until after the new year. Uh, tomorrow, this week, Brian will be hosting BMAS and Beamer solo. I will be filling in for David Bellavia. So I uh, hope you will tune in this week. Lots to get to. Lots going on right before the holiday season. And a lot to talk to you about uh, when it comes to the holidays. You know this is one of my favorite times of the year, if not my favorite time of the year. Uh, so I think you'll know. What, uh, what my topics will be leaning towards. As I mentioned, uh, on Friday, Brian Mazarowski and I spoke with Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins University. Here's a little bit of that interview on Hardline. Don't forget, coming up at 11
0: o'clock, Mayor Byron Brown will be joining us here on WBEN. We are joined uh, by one of our favorite guests, Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins University, specializing in infectious diseases. Um, with a look at everything going on in the COVID picture, there's so much to get to, Dr. Adalja. We thank you once again for the time. I um, <laughs> I don't know where to begin, so why don't we start with uh, this Omicron And what we know, I I mean, it seems like every day we're getting more and more data, but I do want to be, you know, careful before we rush to assumption. I I think the assumption right now is that this appears to be highly uh, contagious, more contagious even than the Delta variant that we've seen, uh, but perhaps less likely to give you any sort of severe outcome. Uh, If you contract this form of the virus, you may be, uh, uh, I don't want to say lucky, but you may be better off than anyone who's had COVID in the past year and a half. Is that, with what we know now, the accurate assumption, or is it too early to tell? Some parts of it we can say
4: with confidence, uh, other parts we can't. So what we can say confidently is that this is a more contagious version of the virus and the reason it's more contagious is that it's not stymied by the antibodies that people have generated from prior infection or from antibodies. So it can infect somebody who's fully vaccinated. It can infect somebody who had a prior infection, basically very easily. And that's what's allowing it to rise so rapidly. It's displacing Delta. It displaced Delta in, in South Africa. It's displacing Delta in some parts of Scandinavia. It's increasing in places like London. Uh, we see a doubling time that's a lot faster than we've seen with Delta. And it's because antibodies are not making a difference in its spread. Regarding its severity, I think we have to be careful there. There are some hopeful signs out of South Africa that this seems to be uh, less likely to hospitalize, uh, and if you do get hospitalized, less likely to kill shorter lengths of stay. But we have to be careful because South Africa is a different country than the United States in terms of demographics. They are much younger than the U.S. and not as obese as the U.S. So you have to be, be careful about taking that, but we'll see. We'll learn that soon. But for an unvaccinated person, If you get delta if you get omicron and you're high risk it's likely to land you in the hospital nonetheless it's it's this virus is coming for the unvaccinated whether or not it's omicron or whether it's delta
0: now all that being said we are seeing cases on the rise here in new york state and uh in new york city even where uh, that's been you know low over the past few days they've seen a rise in cases um we heard this from our governor yesterday this is uh, something she tweeted out increasing cases reduced hospital capacity And insufficient vaccination rates, New York is headed in the wrong direction. Now, I I thought it was strange because she said insufficient vaccination rates. And and the tweet before that, she gave the vaccination rates, which is 70 percent of all New Yorkers are considered fully vaccinated. And uh, that's all New Yorkers. That would include kids under 12 years old. Ninety three point eight percent of adult New Yorkers have had at least one dose of a vaccine. And I'm looking at those numbers and I'm thinking, you know, insufficient vaccination rates. I don't know if I, you told me at the beginning of the vaccine program, I don't know if I would have expected anything more than that. I Can we expect anything more? And is that really insufficient in terms of granting us protection?
4: Well, I think if you look at the European countries that are getting hit with Omicron, uh, and some of the places where hospitalizations have gone up, it, it is probably insufficient because it's not. When you look at that number, you're giving an average number across the state, and that includes little kids, people that are at low risk for hospitalization. What you really, what really matters, is the percentage of uh, of adults with high risk conditions that are fully vaccinated. And that's not going to that that's you're going to see enough of. Even if the number looks high to you numerically, <clears throat> when you still when you multiply that by the population, that's still A lot of people. And then you have to look geographically where they live. So, yes, probably New York City will be okay because of the the level of vaccination they have. But some of the rural areas in New York State, there are probably pockets of unvaccinated individuals that are sufficient to crush a community hospital in that area. Now, I I grew up in the Pittsburgh area. I live and practice in the Pittsburgh area. And we see it, it okay in the city of Pittsburgh. But if you just go north to the places between Pittsburgh and Buffalo, for example, There are a lot of unvaccinated people there, and there are small hospitals that maybe have six-bed or 12-bed ICUs. They can't handle that type of uh, issue. My hometown hospital in Butler, Pennsylvania, is crushed. Even though the vaccination rate might be high in Pennsylvania, there's still enough high-risk people there that they can crush a hospital. So maybe not a, a national systemic problem, or maybe not even a statewide problem, but clearly regional problems are going to happen based on who is unvaccinated and where they live and what the hospital capacity is in that region.
2: In that same, our governor also mentioned that um, the definition of fully vaccinated could change to include those who are boosted. So unless you are boosted, you are not considered fully vaccinated. Obviously, she hasn't gone that far yet. um, But what would you say of changing the definition of fully vaccinated to three shots?
4: I don't think that makes sense because. What we're trying to do is prevent severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And when you look at the data on Omicron, when you look at the data from Delta, if you're fully vaccinated and you're a healthy person, you are protected against what matters, serious illness, hospitalization, and death. So I don't think there's any scientific basis to say someone that got two doses of Pfizer is equivalent to someone who got zero doses of Pfizer. There's just no scientific basis to say someone that's, full, that's fully vaccinated under the current, current definition is the same thing as someone who's unvaccinated. That's just not true.
0: Now, we're looking at this still, though, in in the terms of, uh, you know, vaccination to help everybody else, right, which I I guess would make sure if you're a high risk person and you're getting vaccinated, you are going to help the hospital situation in that you'd be less likely to find yourself uh, amid one of those numbers on that big chart that we see every. Single day, but you know we, we're talking about vaccination mandates and now even booster mandates to get into businesses that don't have to wear masks, all under the idea that well, you don't have to worry about spread, uh, spreading the virus, or getting the virus. I, how good is that message with what we're seeing out there in real time?
4: Well, I, I think that businesses have the right to set their terms of employment, and if they want their employees to be vaccinated or boosted. That's their, their issue. I think that I I don't really advise businesses to require boosters. I don't, I don't think that universities should do that, but they are doing that. But what I think is important to remember is that if you've got, if you're not vaccinated and you're high risk, you will, you will help yourself by getting vaccinated because you're going to decrease your risk of dying or being hospitalized or having your life disrupted. And that's the same thing for anybody that's unvaccinated, that you help yourself because you you're, you don't have this illness and you've you've staved it off with a safe and effective vaccine. But you also have to remember that in some of these hospitals where they are crushed with unvaccinated COVID patients and they say they're not hurting anybody, they actually are. Because if you have a stroke in a place that's crushed with COVID patients, you may wait in the waiting room. You may get, get diverted to another hospital. So we, we really have this problem, and I think we talked about this the last time I was on it, that our hospital capacity is very fixed in the United States. It's not something you can quickly quickly uh, improve or expand on, and we have a nursing shortage, and so there's a lot of unstaffed beds. So because we're all tied together in the same hospital system, for better or worse, and there are laws like MTAO which say you, can't, you have to treat everybody that shows up, it does really impact, it, it does have a major impact on, on your community hospital when you're not vaccinated, especially if you're someone who's then going to say, I want monoclonal antibodies, I'm coming to the emergency department, I need an ICU bed. All of that is really taking a huge toll on the healthcare system's ability to function, and that's why vaccination, that keeps people out of the hospital, is is so important. And in, in, as we move through this winter, because there there is Delta, there is Omicron, and we have hospitals that some of them regionally are, are busting at the seams. It's not as bad as it was a year ago, but it is still not a, a proper position because it's all preventable. I mean, why why are we doing this? Why are there 67,000 people in the hospital for a vaccine-preventable disease? I mean, that, that's mind-boggling to me.
0: You mentioned monoclonal antibodies. Are we missing something if we are on the brink of experiencing something that's much more transmissible and might outpace our efforts for vaccination or, or booster amongst older people or people who are overweight or have some other comorbidity, you know, the the message has really not changed. Get vaccinated, get vaccinated, get boosted. I'm sure that's going to be said again. There seems to be no focus on treatment. We hear every once in a while, like every other week, about these COVID pills, but it almost seems like that's been put on the back burner by the FDA in terms of uh, getting their approval and getting them out there already. In New York, I mean, here we're being told about a crisis every single day. I don't think I've ever heard any of these officials even make mention of monoclonal antibodies being available ever. Why isn't there a focus on treatment as well? And by the way, that treatment would, it's not like we're just going to be treating unvaccinated people. That treatment could be used for the, you know, 25% of people who are in our hospitals right now who are vaccinated too.
4: Well, one thing, monoclonal antibodies are are used, the way they're used currently is as a preventative. So someone that's high risk for severe disease gets COVID-19 within a seven to 10 day window, they get infused with monoclonal antibodies with the hope it prevents them from needing hospitalization. But the thing is, the monoclonal antibodies require injection and infusion and a lot of logistics. So sometimes they're, they're underutilized. But yes, they are a key component of keeping people out of the hospital. And there was not a very good concept of operations early on. But now I think most states have have stepped up but they, and been able to set up a system and healthcare systems have set up ways to get monoclonal antibodies to people quickly. Uh, we've seen really good success in, in certain parts of the country, but it's spotty and people have to be aware of it. So yes, if you are somebody that's high risk and you have COVID, even if you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, you should be calling your doctor immediately and demanding monoclonal antibodies. Even though there's paperwork and bureaucracy to put, to put uh, to fill them out to get them, that's what you should be asking for. When it comes to the antivirals, I think people were disappointed after the the advisory board meeting on the Merck drug. It, it, it got through uh, kind of on a, on a controversial vote or, or a very close vote. The FDA acting commissioner has not yet approved the Merck drug, and it's probably not a game changer. It's probably not any better than monoclonal antibodies, uh, and monoclonal antibodies are probably superior to it. The Pfizer drug looks really, really great. I think within the next couple of weeks, the FDA advisory board will be meeting. But yes, we need this drug now. Uh, the Pfizer drug has a 90% uh, ability to keep people out of the hospital. And remember, their trial was done in unvaccinated individuals. Uh, this is really game-changing, so we need the FDA to move as expeditiously as possible and get this drug in people's hands, especially in the face of Omicron, uh, where, where we're going to, to need it uh, more than ever. You
2: know, uh, COVID-19 is spreading through the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, and now there is a, a louder uh, voice talking about, you know, these are healthy, mostly vaccinated um, athletes Should they even be testing as regularly as they are? What do you say to this idea? Baker Mayfield can't start this weekend. He says he feels fine, but he tested positive for COVID. Uh, Do you think we're going to get to the point, are we at that point, where these athletes would just stop testing and they're able to play if they don't have symptoms?
4: Well, I, I think that a lot of the sports leagues made the mistake of doing testing of asymptomatic individuals. And, I, I wouldn't have, and the CDC doesn't even recommend testing of asymptomatic individuals unless they've been exposed or for travel-related purposes. But they were, they were doing that. But once you do that, then you actually can't ignore a positive test. I mean, a positive test still means something. But my, my question has always been to the sports leagues, why are you testing asymptomatic individuals? Because then it puts you in this position. Um, so I think that's what we have to take a step back and understand, is that that strategy was bound to lead to this. I think eventually we'll get to a point where a positive test is looked at, you know, is scrutinized in the sense that is this person contagious? Are they positive just on PCR, not antigen? Do they have symptoms? Have they? And, and we'll start to abbreviate uh, isolation and quarantine periods. But we're not quite there yet. But you cannot ignore a positive test. Um, you shouldn't be if you, if you don't want to know the answer to the test, you shouldn't actually be sending the test uh, on an asymptomatic individual. And if and then if you have one, though, you, you can't i say that that person's not a risk to others. You've got to take some steps to understand, do they pose a risk to others? And remember, the NFL, you know, they are healthy, but there's a high level of obesity and people that are overweight in, in there, people with asthma. And there are also liars in the NFL that say they're vaccinated.
0: You know, I'm wondering, and you talk about the NFL, NBA, NHL. NHL, uh, according to the league, there's only four players, not 4%, four players who are unvaccinated. Yet still, you have an entire team sidelined because the virus is spreading Uh, Within them. And I'm wondering if, you know, uh, we we go back to March of 2020. It was kind of sports that grabbed everyone's attention, right? You know, the NBA postpones their season. Now everyone all of a sudden, oh, man, do I have to take this COVID thing seriously? I'm going to have to start paying attention to this. Uh, Do you think that might happen in the other way where, you know, all of a sudden we're seeing all these positive cases amongst uh, entire teams sometimes, uh, all these players who people in the community know very well, and what we'll likely see is, okay, uh, vaccinated people testing positive, having limited to no symptoms, and then being back on the field doing what they do, in the most part, uh, not that long after. Do you think in some way we might look again to the sports world as our barometer of uh, this going from pandemic to endemic. Well, I, I would say it's not a barometer, but I think the sports leagues, because of the way they can, <clears throat> they have a captive
4: audience of players that they can they can do a lot of things uh, differently. And we, we learned the value of serial testing, because you can remember back with the NBA and NHL seasons during the pandemic, where they had zero cases with their bubbles, they showed that that worked, and that was really important to show that this things things could be done safely with testing and social distancing and in quarantine periods. So they, they did really good there, and I think that was instrumental in showing how that could happen. And maybe the, the sports leagues will now be the place where we generate the data on, is it safe to take a positive test and then say, instead of keeping that person out for 10 days, which is the CDC recommendation, truncating that based on rapid antigen test. So when a person becomes rapid antigen test negative, they go, back, uh, they go back to play. That may be something we see happening. And I think increasingly most people in my field would actually support that type of move because it's not really one-size-fits-all. And we know that breakthrough infections are, are contagious for a, a much shorter period of time than, than a, non, uh, a non-breakthrough infection. So there, there may be ways to use the sports league's and their protocols to try and make a more general protocol for the for the public and, and to get get us to a more manageable level, because right, right now, a breakthrough infection, even though it's mild, it's still disruptive because a person has to be out for 10 days. They have to tell their contacts. Those contacts have to be either quarantined or tested, depending on their vaccination status. That's really, really disruptive. And I think we've got to get to a point where we utilize rapid tests to be able to allow people to get back on their feet faster if they're not symptomatic and they're not dangerous to others.
2: Now, outside of sports, uh, looking at tests when it comes to, like, a county, like Erie County, um, here in Erie County, uh, you have to call a phone number to get a test, uh, to get a free county test. Obviously, if you want to pay $100, you can go to any corner and get a a test. Is uh, better availability to those rapid tests, maybe at-home tests, as we saw in Monroe County, as we saw in other places through New York State, another way to battle this um, instead of, you know, I know vaccines are number one and in, in, in that, but maybe making tests more available on a free scale uh, to regions that are seeing the surge like Erie County, would that, that be another way to fight COVID? Definitely. And
4: this is something we should have been doing early on in the pandemic, way back even before the vaccine era, because if people can know their status, they can change their behavior. If they know they're, they're safe or not safe to be around people, they can they can take protective actions and not spread the disease. So yes, I think that people should be getting home tests in their mailbox every day. They should be free. They, I mean, obviously, they're not free. They're paid for by taxpayers, but they should be at no out-of-pocket cost. You, don't, you shouldn't have to fill out an insurance form to reimburse. That doesn't make any sense. Yes, these should be everywhere. They should be in vending machines. You should just be able to walk out the door and, and find, uh, find a, a free home test. And you know, in, in England and places like that, you can just pick up a pack whenever you want and just have them and I think that's what we have to do, because uh, they're being underutilized, and that's causing much more disruption to the economy and to people's lives than it could than it should, because you shouldn't have to drive all around town looking for a home test, or you shouldn't have to fill out these huge insurance forms for a home test uh, and get reimbursed after the fact. The home tests here are, are more expensive, and they're scarcer, and, and it's because the way the FDA regulated them, they regulated them as full medical diagnostic tests, which put in a lot of development costs in them, which then get passed on to the customer, rather than thinking about them like public health tests, because they help. They help public health, just like when you're dealing with someone that's injecting heroin, you give them those little fentanyl test strips to make sure they don't have fentanyl and their heroin. Those things are free, and nobody even regulates them, and they work. I think that's what we should have had for home tests, this public health paradigm for the testing, not the medical diagnostic paradigm, which took ages to get these things out there, and now they're so limited and expensive and cumbersome
2: that it's not, that, that they're not utilized in their optimal way. That was Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins University. If you'd like to listen to that interview in its entirety, you can find that at WBEN.com and on the Odyssey app. When we come back, Mayor Byron Brown will be joining us. It's Hardline on WBEN